Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm in an age where I see many folks around me tending to elderly parents that are in health declines. I have one myself. And medicine has gotten really good at patching up hearts, kidneys, and other failing organs. And we've learned a lot about combating infectious disease. And so what this means is that if you're lucky enough to avoid a tragic accident, you're going to have to wrestle with long-term disease. And that's the point of today's podcast, that presentation of diseases like cancer or neurodegenerative disease. It happens as we progress into our older years. So is there some sort of biochemical, cellular, physiological gate, some sort of a restriction point that somehow pushes back against those disorders that eventually breaks as we age. Now, research in humans and animal models suggests that it's likely so. So, what is that gate? And if it's discovered, could new drugs be designed to help uncouple our physiological age from the calendar? In essence, allowing us to live longer before those terminal illnesses set in. And this is the topic of today's discussion. We're speaking with Dr. Eric Morgan. He's the COO and co-founder of BioAge. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Morgan. Thanks very much, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is really cool to me too, because just reading about the company and getting familiar with the website, I learned a lot about how to rethink this idea of aging and, and this contribution to disease, along with some potential um, remedies that we'll talk about today. So most people are concerned about living longer, and this idea of lifespan. But what is health span, and why is that potentially more important than lifespan per se? Yeah, absolutely. So lifespan, of course, is how long you live, and health span is just how long you live in good health. Essentially, you know, prior to developing your first major age-related disease. And of course, what all of us care about is uh, living with a healthy, good quality life. And so that's what uh, the idea of health span captures, um, that we'd like to basically, the, our, our real priority, all of us, is to live a longer, longer, healthier life. And that's what health span captures. Um, but this idea of health span is really connected perfectly with the aging process. Mm -hmm. And so what's going on at, say, the developmental level, maybe molecular level, that really is defining what aging is? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So at a, you know, fundamental molecular level, aging is basically the process by which all of the metabolic um, processes and molecular pathways that normally keep you, you know, functioning well and robustly um, as a young person, all of those pathways and processes gradually break down as you get older. And it's that breakdown at a cellular level that causes cellular level dysfunction that then uh, eventually manifests at, you know, a tissue level, at an organ level with a specific disease uh, and ultimately at the level of your whole body. 
um, where you become increasingly susceptible to all kinds of diseases and ultimately have an increased risk of disability and death. Are diseases like Alzheimer's and cancer, are they really established by events that are happening during aging, meaning that aging kind of sets the stage for these disorders that it's kind of a prerequisite that you don't see children walking around with Alzheimer's disease. What's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. Outside of some, you know, very specific, rare hereditary diseases, um, you don't get neurodegeneration uh, until you're quite old. Uh, and that's the case with many of these diseases, which are aptly named age-related diseases. You know, the risk of Alzheimer's goes up exponentially with age. Um, and it's really, you know, it's your age that's the, you know, number one risk factor for developing uh, diseases like Alzheimer's. So, um, so it's clear that there is this underlying biological process of aging that is driving the increased risk for, you know, not only Alzheimer's and cancer, but, you know, heart disease, chronic lung disease, um, you know, degenerative eye disease, et cetera. You know, there's a very long list. Um, and there's this underlying principle here that, you know, there's this wide, you know, vast variety of diseases that, you know, share this underlying etiology. And uh, that's actually what, you know, we find really compelling. It's why we work on aging. It's that um, it's this very potentially huge impact you can have. If you can really modulate the aging process, you can, you know, affect the, you know, decrease the risk uh, of developing all sorts of diseases and really improve health and quality of life for, um, you know, for people in the population. Yeah. And you see, I could, I could go all day just on aging alone because it, it's intriguing to me that, uh, you know, small things like mice, they age at one rate mm -hmm. and tor tortoises at another and dogs at another, humans at another. It's a really interesting kind of innate developmental pathway. It seems like it's something that's already uh, designed into our DNA. And does it appear that this is a common pathway among humans that all that everyone goes down at the same rate? Or are there different ways that humans have uh, genetically maybe more accelerated or slower programs? Yeah, so it's clear that different people are aging at different rates. Um, another way of saving that, saying that is that some people age more successfully and some people age you know, less successfully, i.e. they get, you know, diseases at a younger age, they get disability at a younger age, and they die at a, at a younger age. Um, and there's really this, this really close link, as we were mentioning before, between, um, you know, health span and lifespan. It's really as your health deteriorates, that leads to a shortened lifespan in most cases. Um, and so you have these uh, amazing examples within the population of people who are, you know, aging more or less successfully. And uh, at the really good end of that spectrum, you have these amazing examples of, you know, centenarians and super centenarians. Um, you know, to give just one example, whose uh, name is Lila Denmark, um, who is a pediatrician who practiced until the age of 103, um, which is, you know, a working lifespan that's, you know, probably double uh, that of, you know, most of us. Um, and she, you know, lived until 114 and a really, you know, important thing about these people who are very, who live a long time, who live beyond 100 or 110, is that um, they don't age in poor health. They actually have a much shorter uh, period at the end of their life where they're in poor health than the rest of us. So, um, so these people who have a long life also have a really long health span. And so um, that's actually a really fundamental concept to 
uh, how we uh, do our research and find our, our targets and, and what pathways we want to modulate to improve human health, we, we look at this variation. We look at these people who have these amazing long lives and the people who, you know, who age more poorly and try to figure out the root causes um, of those differences in terms of biology. Um, and that's what we target with our therapeutics. What's really interesting about this, and I've been through your website and some of the publications and news releases, is that most of the targets that you're looking at are not the traditional molecular and cellular events that have been described, things like telomere shortening, things like that. And so what are some of the, the events that, uh, that we've classically looked at as the molecular underpinnings of, of aging? And are those really just correlations? Right. So there's, there's quite a lot of things that go wrong as you age. Um, I think you've alluded to that as well. And, um, you know, one way of, uh, breaking these into sort of fundamental biologic processes is to think of them as the hallmarks of aging. Um, there was a famous paper published under that name, but these sort of categories of things that go wrong. And so, uh, you know, for example, one thing that goes wrong is, you know, cell signaling. If cells are not able to you know, talk to each other in a way that um, is as well controlled as when you're younger, that causes, you know, breakdown in tissue functioning, um, which includes, you know, stem cell functioning, which is another actually major hallmark of aging is that as we get older, um, the stem cells, uh, these sort of, you know, more, more powerful cells in a way that live in, in each of our tissues um, that are able to help regenerate those tissues when there's damage, you know, that they, they get less able to do that as you get older. So, um, and so this breakdown in cell signaling and stem cell function is actually addressed directly by, you know, one of our programs, uh, which is our, our APLIN program. Um, another really classic aspect of aging is inflammaging the idea that, you know, you are, have a more inflamed physiologic state as you get older. And that's a really, you know, key component of aging and causes a lot of other problems. Um, and we're, addressing inflammation through, um, through a different uh, program that targets the uh, NLRP3 uh, inflammasome pathway. Yeah, we'll catch up on that in just a little bit um, with some of the therapeutics that are potentially coming down the line. Um, one of the intriguing parts about aging in my mind has been, and we touched on this briefly, is the variation we see among animals and animal models. Yeah. Yeah. And so you got mice that live, you know, however long a mouse lives. But then you have things like uh, uh, tortoises and some bats, like the variation within bats is huge mm -hmm. in terms of how long they have a lifespan. Mm -hmm. And so how much have we learned from animal models about the aging process and how have those uh, studies really informed human health? Yeah, yeah, this is, it's really interesting because there's a few, I think, really high level points here. And one um, is, as you alluded to, there's a massive diversity in lifespan uh, among animals. You know, when you go from, you know, rodents to, um, to humans to, uh, to really long-lived species um, like, uh, you know, Greenland sharks, you know, or, or certain types of tortoises. And so really that's, you know, blatant proof that there's nothing set in stone about, you know, the human lifespan that it should be 80 or 90 years, for example. Um, and that it's really, you know, certain aspects of, you know, evolutionary happenstance that specific um, organisms have specific lifespans. And um, so that's one point uh, that lifespan is clearly, you know, there's examples of all sorts of lifespans that we can potentially achieve. Uh, point two is that um, 
experiments in model organisms have clearly shown that we can intervene in aging, that we can take an animal that's aging at its natural rate and that we can administer a therapy. And there's a few good examples of this that um, extends that uh, animal's lifespan and health span. Uh, and if we can do it in animals, you know, there's no fundamental reason why we shouldn't be able to do that in humans. Uh, and then point three is that, um, you know, specifically using um, animal models as a way to test therapeutics, you know, that's clearly, we do a lot of that. Um, and that has classically focused on animals that are very different from us. So, you know, we established that we can change the rate of aging in, in worms, you know, C. elegans or, or in flies, uh, Drosophila. And, um, you know, the things that work in those anim uh, animals are going to be quite different in many cases from the things that will work in humans. Uh, and so, you know, the actual use of model organisms, um, has not resulted to date in a therapy, uh, that, you know, was discovered in those model organisms and has translated into people, um, and is on the market, of course. And so, um, you know, there's this really important point that, that we care a lot about at BioAge, which is, you know, starting with evidence from human biology, uh, in our case, from healthy, you know, human aging cohorts and figuring out what are the best targets there, uh, and kind of starting with that to have the greatest chance of, you know, having a therapy that really works in people. Yeah. And we'll talk about that. Uh, so that's a really important part of the approach, but when we talk about, uh, limiting aging, you know, as a prerequisite to heading off disease, it's, we've discussed this already today in another podcast that it's multifactorial. There's so many things that are happening. Hmm. How can it effectively be treated? It is there, are you treating multiple factors or is it potentially that there is some sort of master regulator that can uh, kind of slow that clock? Yeah, no, there's clearly no single master regulator. And as a result, there's going to be no, you know, single silver, silver bullet for aging. That's, I think, pretty clear from the literature and, you know, very compatible with what we've seen in our healthy aging cohorts, that there's no, there's no one pathway to rule them all. Um, but uh, so there's many pathways, um, but at the same time, you know, those pathways have a structure and some pathways are regulated by others. And so there's clearly, you know, pathways that are very important for aging and, um, you know, in the way that aging drives kind of disease and ultimately lifespan, um, we are confident that, you know, treating specific pathways will have, you know, individual substantial effects. You know, if you, if you pick the right pathways, targeting that pathway alone is going to um, improve health in certain ways and likely improve lifespan. Um, but that fixing only, only that one pathway is not going to, you know, have an indefinite benefit. Eventually, the other pathways kind of catch up with you. And so there's this, you know, strong likelihood that there's going to be a, you know, a, a sequential uh, approach where, you know, first you target one pathway and then you target another, and then maybe you have a combination therapy that targets both at the same time. And so, you know, the, you know, long-term vision would be to ultimately have a, a suite of therapies potentially, you know, combined that um, cover large parts or ultimately all of these, you know, different aging pathways that are, you know, really driving uh, disease and death. So, um, so there's a lot of, a lot of potential pathways to drug and a lot of potential in that approach. And what about this, uh, discussion around caloric restriction? Because that's been, at least in my, in my mind, probably the most compelling way to slow the process. And how does that tie in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really, you know, interesting studies that show that, you know, at least in a number of model organisms, if you, you know, decrease the 
a caloric intake, you can increase lifespan. And, um, you know, certainly that could translate to humans, but I think there's a number of ways in which it might not translate well. Um, first of all, there's, you know, a theory that, um, you know, caloric restriction may have evolved or the effect of caloric restriction may have evolved such that say, you know, you're an animal, uh, in a particularly hard winter, there's no food around. Um, it's a way to kind of redirect biological, uh, priority from things like reproduction to things like, let's just survive, um, until, you know, the next time we can, we can start to get to food and, and reproduce. Um, and just thinking of it that way, it makes sense that a really robust effect in a mouse, you know, where them extending their lifespan by, you know, uh, a couple of seasons would be a really large percentage <laughs> extension in their life, but it might be much less, um, in people. There's also a really interesting point that, you know, these observations have been primarily in lab mice and lab mice are very unique organisms in particular ways. In particular, they were bred for, um, really high fertility rates. So you could breed them quickly, um, practical consideration. And, um, and that creates, you know, a priority for these reproductive pathways over things like, you know, sort of, you know, survive, uh, and wait pathways. And, um, and so they may be particularly susceptible to benefit from something like caloric restriction. Lab mice also are very, you know, prone to obesity. And it's clear that, you know, if you're a very obese creature, whether an animal or a person, um, it's good for your health to calorically restrict and, you know, and normalize that. Um, so, so there's a lot of, you know, cool findings. Um, there's been, you know, there were primate studies that, uh, didn't have major findings that recapitulate the, the, the mouse findings. So, um, but I think one point here is that this is kind of a good example of why it's really important if you want to have a therapy that's going to work in people and to be confident that it, that it will, um, that you should start with, um, data and observations in humans. Um, so that's what we're excited about. Well, that's a really good stepping off point. Um, we'll come back on the other side of the break. We're speaking with Dr. Eric Morgan. He's a co-founder and COO of BioAge. And we're talking about aging and how it's the gateway to preventing long-term disease. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra. And we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Eric Morgan. He's the co-founder and COO of BioAge. And we're talking about the idea that aging is really the prerequisite to disease, that it uh, sets the stage, essentially. The changes that are happening developmentally, physiologically, at the molecular level, provide a basis by which these other diseases can take hold. So if there were ways to prevent or slow down these particular facets of the aging process, it could uncouple the propensity to develop disease from the calendar, which is really a pretty exciting approach. So um, let's talk specifically about bioage and your approach. So you've been using biobanks, which have data from large numbers of patients 
to identify specific drug targets. Can you tell us more about that process? Yeah, for sure. So one key kind of point, starting off point here is that, you know, what we want to do as a company is develop therapies that target fundamental mechanisms of aging to treat disease. Um, and if you want to figure out what the right mechanisms are to improve health in people and improve aging in people, you need to one, start with humans. And so that's why the, you know, these are cohorts that we're using and not starting with animal models. And two, um, aging in humans is a process that happens over many decades. And so, um, you need to start with data that encompasses many decades of aging. And so we have partnered with some very special biobanks that have samples collected longitudinally over many years and, uh, and health outcomes connected, collected also longitudinally over many years. So we can take a look at people who are middle-aged, don't really have any diseases yet. Um, and they're, they're, uh, and we can ask this really fundamental question, um, by going into the blood samples that have been collected over time, we can deeply profile those samples and measure all the molecules and biological processes that are happening uh, in those blood samples and relate to the health of the overall person and ask this question, what's different about two people who are both healthy and middle age, one of whom goes on to age relatively quickly, develop diseases quickly and die quickly, and the other one who is very robust and lives a really long time in great health. Um, you know, essentially people who age quickly and people who age slowly. Yeah. So what kind of data are you looking for? Are these uh proteins that are different between the different samples and stages? Or are you looking at gene expression changes or all the above? Yeah, all the above. Um, we particularly like proteomics and metabolomics. So that's measuring the circulating proteins and metabolites in blood. But we, we look at, um, you know, these other types of you know, molecules can be measured as well, transcriptomics, methylomics. And, um, and so, yeah, at a, at a fundamental, at a very simple, simple level, let's say it is exactly that. It's sort of saying, you know, what are the, you know, proteins or metabolites that are, you know, we're observing in, you know, different, different levels and different people who want to have different outcomes. Um, of course, it's very complicated data. Um, so there's, you know, many thousands of data points just for the biology from these samples per patient, per, per blood sample, actually. And we're following, you know, thousands of patients over decades, you know, up to, up to, you know, more than 45 years. Yeah, but one of the big problems I would think is how do you separate uh, correlation from causality? You know, you've got mm -hmm. a snapshot of a blood sample or some sort of, you know, metabolite profile. And how do you know or how do you use maybe AI or whatever to be able to separate what is just there as a, as a function of some sort of long-term developmental breakdown from something that kind of is causing it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, there's, it's a, it's a fundamental, um, challenge that you're describing, um, in getting to good targets. And, and so there's a number of ways we think about that. And so one is that there's a benefit to having longitudinal samples here. And so our, um, our modeling that we do to kind of find the drug targets takes that into account and, you know, and ask this question or, or demands of the, of the, of the targets that the association be consistent over time so that. Uh, you can observe essentially the pathways going awry as the um, clinical outcomes uh, are increasingly accumulating, uh, like poor clinical outcomes, for example. That's one one aspect. So the longitudinal aspect is important. Um, two is that we can uh, get a much stronger idea of causality through integrating genetic data um, and a 
great example of this is using Mendelian randomization, where we supplement these observations from proteomics and metabolomics um, with observations from genetics showing um, essentially that you know, people who are born with genetics that predispose them to have particular proteomic or metabolomic profiles um, also have the same kinds of outcomes that, you know, we're observing just based on the, uh, the non-genetic data. And that's a link you can use to, to really strongly argue for causality. It's a bit like a, a randomized control where randomization occurs at birth. So it's a cool idea. Um, and, uh, and I'll, I'll just say the last thing that we do, um, which is, you know, well, last two things that we do, which are ultimately the most important is one is we, uh, evaluate, um, these pathways in experimental animal models, um, naturally, uh, sort of, um, aged animal models. And two is that we ultimately uh, evaluate them in clinical trials. So uh, a lot of, a lot of different ways to get towards causality. Mm -hmm. And when you're using animal models, is there anything that we learn from say octogenarians or centrogenarians that uh, can help confirm or maybe refute a hypothesis? Uh, well, absolutely. Like we start with the human data. So we're not even interested in any of these pathways unless they, um, are something that, for example, a healthy 80 year old has that, a unhealthy 80 year old doesn't, or actually more specifically that, you know, people when they're say 50, um, have that are different, uh, when they're destined to go on to become that healthy versus unhealthy 80 year old. Yeah. It's interesting stuff. So, so let's talk about the pipeline. Um, mm -hmm. Are there any good examples or what is a good example of a small molecule that your group has identified that maybe can slow some aspect of aging? Yeah, for sure. So, um, so a great example here is our um, BGE-105 program, which targets the apolin pathway. Uh, and so this is a really interesting pathway that, again, came over, came out of these um, longitudinal aging cohorts where you know, we were interested in developing a drug that benefited muscle aging. And so, uh, you know, we modeled pathways that uh, looked like they'd be likely to, um, you know, over many decades, improve uh, physical and muscle health um, and also improve longevity. And one of the ones that came out on the top of this list was this apelin pathway. Um, and, uh, you know, so one of the initial observations, for example, is that if you just plot levels of sort of apelin pathway activity um, in different people at baselines when they're healthy um, and in middle age, uh, that those levels predict um, the sort of, you know, muscle aging destiny of these people, that people who have higher levels um, go on to have much better physical function uh, when they're older. They have faster walking speed, they have better grip strength, um, you know, better ability to kind of use those things to accomplish everyday activities. Uh, and they also live longer. Um, so that was really interesting. And, um, that led us to, you know, do obviously a lot more deeper analysis to confirm that, but ultimately to sort of evaluate that in, um, animal models where we observed that, um, when we, uh, interventionally boost, um, the apelin pathway that, uh, animals who are aging have, uh, are, are much more sort of physically active, um, as they get older over the course of a few months. Um, and, uh, separately we, we um, applied this as well to an animal model of more rapid muscle atrophy. So this is something that happens to people all the time. Uh, older people, um, are, you know, inactive for some reason, often they get admitted to hospital for something, let's say pneumonia, um, they stay in hospital for a week, um, and they come out and they really can't walk very well. Um, and that's because they've experienced dramatic atrophy during that period. 
And so we um, modeled that in a mouse by uh, taking older mice and um, casting one of their limbs. And this works by the same method. You kind of immobilize the limb, the muscles atrophy. And um, in the mice who uh, got the, our, our drug, BG105, um, they showed basically no muscle atrophy um, after, the, after the period of casting uh, versus you know, the ones who didn't, who showed you know, quite dramatic muscle atrophy. And, um, and so that brought us to um, ultimately kind of mirror that study design in a human uh, phase one clinical trial where we got healthy volunteers um, who volunteered to be at bed rest for 10 days. So they, they, they were lying in bed all day other than going to the bathroom. Um, and that also, um, you know, they're not using their muscles and so those muscles atrophy. And this is established that, um, you know, other people have done this before. And so they experience a lot of muscle atrophy, particularly in their leg muscles. And, uh, we showed by a number of measures that, um, boosting the apelin pathway by our drug BG 105 and these people, um, dramatically protected them from that atrophy. So it preserved the. Um, circumference of their thighs, uh, as an, one example, uh, preserved the dimensions of specific muscles that we measured by ultrasound. Um, it also um, preserved the, the rate at which muscle proteins are synthesized, um, which went down a lot in the people who didn't get the drug um, and was, uh, you know, much better preserved in the people who, who got the drug. So, um, uh, and I, I guess the final aspect is that muscle quality was also, um, again, Muscle quality, in addition to quantity, is known to decline with, uh, with this kind of bed rest atrophy. And uh, via ultrasound, we observed that the muscle, muscle quality was preserved uh, by the drug. So um, so really exciting result that, you know, mirrored the animal data, but also kind of reflected these associations that we found initially in the human data that people, you know, over many decades had protected muscle function. And here we're showing it, you know, over a very short period of time. And we're very, um, you know, optimistic that this can have some dramatic health benefits for people in very specific health conditions. Um, and, you know, probably the most uh, dramatic example of this where muscle atrophy really causes huge problems in a really short period of time is in the intensive care unit where people are um, often put on a ventilator. Um, you know, they have a tube down their throat and there's a machine that basically breathes for them. And so when that happens, that diaphragm, which normally does the work of breathing, is um, at rest. Um, and so just in the same way that, you know, bed rest causes your, your leg muscles to atrophy, being on a ventilator causes your diaphragm to atrophy. And um, it's known from human research that, peop that people who have the most diaphragm atrophy have the most trouble getting off the ventilator at the end once their health is improving. And if you can't get off the ventilator, um, you can't get out of the ICU and you die. So this is a really dramatic example where we think preventing muscle atrophy in older people um, and older people are, are, you know, more prone to all of the negative consequences of being on the ventilator and being in the ICU, um, that preventing that muscle atrophy of the diaphragm uh, will, you know, have dramatic implications for people's health. Um, incidentally, in the ICU, they also get super dramatic um, atrophy of their, of their peripheral muscles, their legs and arms. And so we'll also be able to look at that. Yeah, I have a million questions on this one, but maybe just start with a, a basic one is what is apolin? Absolutely. So um, again, very interesting. So apolin is a peptide, uh, a small protein that circulates um, in the blood and that is secreted prim primarily by muscle. 
and is kind of perceived by a number of different tissues in the body, but notably including muscle. Um, and so this is a class of um, molecules that's known as exerkines because apelin is released by muscle when you exercise, um, along with certain other things, which are also called exerkines. And so it's really interesting that um, apelin may be a great example of why exercise is good for you and um, may probably participates in a lot of the signaling that causes exercise to increase and or preserve your muscle mass. So um, that's one way to kind of, you know, hypothesize what's going on in this clinical trial is that people who are at bed rest, they should experience a lot of atrophy because they're not exercising at all. Um, and here we're, you know, taking patients who are at bed rest by giving them this drug and boosting this sort of exercise pathway in a sense, and they have preserved muscle mass. So, um, so it's a very, you know, interesting pathway with a lot of implications. And, and of course we ultimately hope to, you know, not only develop in these acute indications, but really apply this to the aging population at large, um, and prevent a lot of the really severe, you know, disability and quality of life problems, uh, that have to do with, you know, age related muscle loss or, you know, also called sarcopenia or frailty. That's a really, really good point because it seems to me that that's kind of a downward spiral that once you can't exercise, you can't, you start secrete or stop secreting apolin. Now you don't exercise even more. It seems like, you, like, you know, it's kind of a, a self-feeding problem, but one of the places where I think this is huge and maybe you've thought about this, maybe not, but what about, um, uh, interactions with NASA and astronauts who, mm. because of the fact that there's no gravity come mm -hmm. back and can barely stand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, another great, essentially model human model of, um, muscle atrophy is that, you know, in bed rest, you're kind of unloading your muscles. And when you're in zero G, you're also unloading your muscles. So, you know, astronauts have to do quite a lot of exercise just to kind of, you know, not have really profound atrophy and they, you know, they, nonetheless, they decondition. So, um, that would be definitely a potential application of this. Yeah, this is really neat. So what about uh, chronic inflammation? You've mentioned this before and that this idea of chronic uh, inflammation becomes more common with age. And uh, now we see more and more data that show this connection with uh, pathology. And are there strategies in place to slow or specifically target chronic inflammation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, a pathway that's targeting uh, increased inflammation with aging. Uh, which targets the NLRP3 pathway. Um, and so there's a lot of things that go wrong with your immune system with age. And in some ways, your immune system gets, you know, less effective and is less active. Um, for example, the ability to produce antibodies or respond to new, you know, uh, new diseases or new sort of infections that you encounter um, in terms of antibody response. But there's other aspects where the immune system is just overactive. And that's this idea of inflammaging. And uh, the main culprit here is the innate immune system. And that's exactly where the NLRP3 pathway comes in. It's like the key driver of innate inflammation. And so um, as people get older, they have, you know, increased levels of innate inflammation. Um, a great example of this is neutrophils. And, um, and it's bad to be chronically inflamed. And it's also bad to be acutely inflamed. So older people have a much harder time surviving pneumonia. And in large part, that's because um, there's an overactive immune response uh, in the lungs of uh, older people with pneumonia. And so they damage their own lungs. 
Um, and, uh, you know, it's clear also that chronic inflammation drives things like cardiovascular disease, where it damages the lining of the blood vessels and, uh, neurologic diseases, which, um, you know, neurodegeneration, uh, appears to be driven in part by chronic inflammation. Uh, and so, um, NLRP3, uh, is our program targeting chronic inflammation. And again, it was, um, you know, the genesis was observations in our human cohorts where, you know, people who had higher levels of this over time, um, had worse outcomes in particular, you know, they had shorter lifespans, of course they had more inflammation. Um, and so this is, uh, an example, um, in the, you know, previous case with, um, the Apolin program, we, we didn't make that drug ourselves. We, uh, in licensed it, uh, essentially bought it from, uh, Amgen. And in this case with the 3 this is a molecule we made from scratch after kind of making this observation that uh, it would be a really powerful pathway for aging. We um, screened billions of compounds using a, a, a cool approach called DNA encoded libraries, which I won't go into, but, but very neat um, and came up with a drug that targets this pathway that has really, you know, awesome drug properties, you know, where it's, you know, not only absorbed well, but, um, but it, uh, you know, gets into the brain, it passes the blood brain barrier. And so has this, you know, potential for, um, you know, being applicable to, uh, to help with neurodegeneration, which is a, you know, a massive problem associated with aging. Yeah. And a massive problem in getting worse, because as we start to not succumb to more, um, mundane, uh, issues like infectious disease or even heart disease, we're going to see more and more of that. So we're talking about uh, issues like uh, uh, muscle loss. We're talking about um, chronic inflammation. What are some other potential targets and potential therapeutics that are coming down the pipeline? Um, yeah. So, you know, at BioAge, uh, you know, we're interested in, as I mentioned, muscle aging, um, you know, immune aging. Um, you know, broadly speaking within the field, um, it's a, it's a, really wide open new field, um, where, you know, companies like BioAge are just starting to kind of, you know, evaluate, uh, aging therapeutics, um, in a, in a folk, in a way that's focused on, on developing new therapies. Um, and we're just starting to get them into the clinic. And, uh, so, you know, there's a lot of approaches that are being taken and, you know, some notable ones are, uh, you know, senolytics. So these are therapies that are trying to um, destroy selectively senescent cells, uh, and senescent cells are, you know, have been called sort of zombie cells that they're a small proportion of your cells that, um, you know, that get, gets a large, gets to be a larger proportion as you age. And they're these dysfunctional cells that essentially should have died, but, but didn't. And they hang around secreting really kind of noxious, toxic factors that, um, you know, negatively impact the health of all the cells and tissue around them. And so, um, there's a strong promise here that, you know, if you could just kill the senescent cells in a specific tissue or across the body, you could, um, you know, do really good things for aging. Um, another common, uh, or thing that people are interested in is stem cell function, which I mentioned before. Um, it's really key that, you know, as you get older, your stem cells in different parts of your body are much less able to regenerate um, their specific tissues, um, or organs in response to, you know, damage to those organs, whether that damage be, you know, really acute or chronic. Um, and so being able to revitalize those stem cells could do a lot for human health. Um, there's other companies interested in, um, sort of young versus old blood, um, which, um, you know, that's kind of entered the public eye and the media. 
um, looking at sort of, you know, what's different between the circulating factors and old uh, people's blood and young people's blood and using that to find, um, you know, interesting drug targets, um, including for neurodegeneration. That's, that's one approach. Um, another uh, approach that's gotten a lot of press recently is partial, partial reprogramming, where you take the science behind um, sort of being able to take terminally differentiated cells like regular everyday cells um, and turn them back into stem cells, um, which have, you know, much more biological, um, you know, power or potential. And you take that same technology and say, can we turn this into a therapeutic um, that, you know, it's not just going to take a cell in a dish and, and, and revert it to a primordial state, but it's going to take your whole body and kind of revert it to a slightly uh, more primordial state, which will rejuvenate all of your tissues. Very cool, but, um, but just in its infancy. Um, and I'll just say that, you know, at BioAge, we don't sort of pick any of these particular approaches. We take this data-driven approach where we um, look at the cohorts and all of this molecular data coming out of the cohorts and let it tell us, you know, which pathways are really important. And then afterwards, we kind of look up and say, ah, that pathway is relevant for um, you know, for this, for, for whatever biologic process. So, um, and, and, and I guess there's, you know, this, this aging field is kind of wide open. So there's a lot of take, you know, companies taking different approaches and, uh, we, you know, love to see, you know, any and all of them succeed because, uh, you know, there's the field is wide open. The space is wide open. There's no therapies of this sort. Um, and there's going to be many of these once they begin to become successful. And, uh, and obviously the first company that is successful in really bringing one of these drugs to market that's based on a fundamental aging process will really open the field wide up for all of the other companies as well um, in terms of validation of that really fundamental idea. Oh, I very much agree. And, and th just learning about your company and about this approach, it really has made me rethink how I think about research in health, that certainly mm -hmm. there's a lot of focus on cancer and a lot of focus on Alzheimer's. A lot of focus on heart disease, uh, you know, lung dysfunction, all the major killers. But really, shouldn't we be focusing at least maybe a little bit more on how to slow the aging process? Because that really may be the prerequisite to all of these other degenerative diseases. Absolutely. I mean, it's this fundamental maxim of, you know, don't treat the symptom, treat the cause. And it's really becoming very clear that. Um, it's the biology of aging, which, you know, deteriorates as you get older. That's the driving factor for all of these diseases. Um, and so, you know, focusing huge amounts of, you know, money and research efforts on, you know, specific diseases will only ever be relevant to those specific diseases. Um, and, uh, you know, it's quite clear that, you know, even completely curing specific diseases will actually have a lot less of an impact on overall, you know, human health, population health than you'd expect. Um, and it's because there's all these different diseases developing kind of at the same time. So curing cancer, which has been this sort of moonshot goal for, you know, many decades, uh, there's been untold resources spent on it. If we were actually to achieve that goal of completely curing cancer, you know, intuitively, we'd feel, wow, that would be amazing for human health. Of course, it would be amazing for, you know, the specific people um, who don't get cancer. But um, but it turns out that the actual benefit at the population level to overall lifespan um, is only a few years. And that's because, you know, you don't die of your cancer, but then you die of the you know heart disease that was creeping up right behind the cancer or, um, you know, or the, uh, you know, chronic kidney disease or the chronic lung disease or, or whatever it is. 
So there really is, you know, tremendously more potential in, you know, directing uh, money and research resources towards these, these fundamental processes of aging, where if you target them, um, you're going to have far reaching effects across organ systems and across these diseases. Uh, it's a it's a really interesting concept, but let me be a devil's advocate for a second because mm. you know I studied developmental biology in in certain organisms and plants anyway, and I know and from whether you're a fruit fly or a plant or a human being, senescence is a normal program of human development. It's a normal uh, part of the process. And is there potentially is aging really a way that could protect us? from uh, degeneration and that maybe that uh, something like cancer, if it's happening in a uh, older senescent background is less aggressive, or maybe there's a uh, aspects of it that keep things slow, you know, because they're breaking down all over. And am I thinking about that completely wrong in, in that maybe anti-aging drugs could be just pouring the gas on the fire of the diseases that come as we age? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, biology is complicated. You know, senescence, you gave that example, is that, you know, it's involved in different processes and there's some ways in which it's very functional, you know, in wound healing or in development. And there's other ways that become really prominent as you get older um, where it's extremely dysfunctional. Um, and I guess I'll just say that um, anytime you develop a new therapy, there's clearly a chance of unanticipated effects or, you know, side effects or adverse effects, which is, I think, basically what you're getting at. Um, and there's a long history of, you know, drugging new diseases, you know, like, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease, like, you know, eye diseases, et cetera. And, um, you know, in certain cases, those therapies have, um, you know, poor side effects and they're scrapped. And, uh, ultimately we've gotten to, you know, successful therapies that really improve those diseases. And this is really, you know, of course, the reason we do clinical trials, the reason we have a regulatory environment that really cares a lot about safety. And, um, you know, so I guess I would say that, um, you know, really, I think that's different, I guess, about aging in this respect versus other diseases is that, um, you know, when we at BioAge select targets from these healthy aging cohorts, we're really taking the biology of, you know, an average person, for example, and shifting it to exactly, you know, better resemble that of a person who we know is living a really long, healthy life in these trials, like on average across all things. Um, they just live longer and are healthier. So we actually have a much lower risk of running into those problems um, if we, you know, if we are modifying biology in that way and we get this really, you know, it's the right kind of information that you'd want to know for developing a drug that, you know, if you're activating this pathway that people who have more active pathway, uh, active versions of that pathway live longer and are healthier, you know, across all causes. Um, so yeah, a lot less risk that we'll have those issues, but it's always a concern in uh, developing new therapies. Now, this is really, really great stuff. Can you go faster, please? <laughs> <laughs> we are absolutely going as fast as we can. Um, and, uh, we'll try to get, you know, new therapies on the market as, as soon as we can. We'd love to, we'd love to be able to help people. You know, all of us have, uh, you know, loved ones who are, um, having a lot of problems with aging. Yeah. It's definitely the case. I just rolled over a birthday last week and, uh, you know, and I'm kind of getting to that point and, uh, and I'm going to be a parent rather late in life. And so what's really kind of strange is it's the first time I've thought about this where I'm thinking, 
when I'm 75, I got to kind of have my act together. So, um, you know, it's, I've never had that kind of focus before. So I'll be keeping an eye on BioAge and watching your website and looking forward to your products. But if, but if people wanted to learn more about BioAge, where would they look online or potentially in social media? Yeah, for sure. So you can check out our website, you know, bioagelabs.com, uh, which we recently redid that showcases, you know, the, the clinical programs we're working on, the science they're based on, you know, the team that's working on it. Um, for kind of the most up-to-date news, you can look on social media. We're on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, and we also have a podcast called uh, Translating Aging that uh, features uh, researchers and, uh, you know, the companies that are, are working in aging biotech and kind of bringing longevity science, uh, you know, from the lab into the clinic. Excellent. So after you're done listening to Talking Biotech, go listen. To it. <laughs> uh, no, it, it, it sounds exciting. Actually, I'll, I'll definitely check out your podcast because I think this is a fascinating topic. And um, I think if I was somebody who was at the beginning of my career in molecular biology, genomics, that kind of thing, I would be thinking about studying aging in a big way because this just seems like uh, a pinata ready to pop. Uh, so, Dr. Eric Morgan, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. And I really hope that as new developments come along, that you'll reach out again and we can follow up on this and maybe someday look back on when we first co connected um, long before the really good therapies came along. So looking forward to talking to you in the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Kevin. And like always, thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast uh, by Collabra. Check out Collabra's suite of products and find some that can help your laboratory, um, but also fill out reviews on the podcast. Uh, we always like to see new people writing reviews and adding the texture to that part of uh, the evaluations that people read as they search for podcast media. We're doing great. Our numbers are always going up and with more and more choices all the time. That says a lot about you, the listener, and uh, how you really are the wind beneath our wings as we continue to talk about technology. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Collabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Collabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. -P.